Good morning. We will be reading from uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bibles again, you can turn with me to Ecclesiastes. I believe we'll be starting in chapter 2. And while you're turning there, uh, after the service, it's a little wet, but uh, we've still got sandwiches, so if you'd like to uh, come join us, um, we'll be out at the playground. And anybody can jo- come join us if you've got kids or not, if you just want to come hang out and talk for a while after the service and enjoy each other's fellowship. Picnic and play dates, that'll be um, right after the service out on the playground. Also, this Thanksgiving, we've got um, <laughs> a great service that I'm really excited about. It's our Thanksgiving service, and we're going to talk about what Jesus has done in our life and share testimonies of what the Lord has done. And if you'd like to share your testimony, um, we're looking for a few people to share up front, and then also, if getting up front is a little intimidating, uh, which it is just for about everybody, um, we'll have a video option as well where you can um, share on a video and come in throughout the week, and um, Bo and I can record uh, your story of what Jesus has done in your life, and then we will uh, play that on Sunday mornings. And we just want to know what God has done uh, in your life. So if you're interested in doing that, make sure to come up and let me know. Thanksgiving is going to be coming up soon, um, so make sure to do that in the next few weeks. And today, we'll be reading from Ecclesiastes. We were talking about, uh, reading about King Solomon, who was the wisest man in the Bible, not named Jesus, and he's also the richest person in history when you put it into its context. Reading about King Solomon's journey through life as he looks for meaning and purpose, how King Solomon looks for meaning and purpose in all of the different things under the sun, all of these smaller idols that we can uh, put in our lives in between us and the Lord. And we're reading his journey as he finds these things empty and meaningless and learns to turn his gaze and his focus to what is above the sun and to focus on the Lord. While you're turning there to Ecclesiastes, uh, when I was a junior in high school, I took physics And it was one of the hardest classes I've ever taken, and I had one of the strictest teachers I've ever had. His name was Mr. Ron. And Mr. Ron was was so specific about how he wanted you to show your work on the problems. He went through and he wanted you to put all the triangles here, all the equations there. He wanted your answer circled right down there. And Mr. Ron went through on the whiteboard and he showed us how to do all the problems and how to lay them out exactly as he wanted and it came time for the final test, and this was a very hard class, and I had been doing well. I'd been working really hard. And we got to the final test, and the final test was an incredible part of your grade. It was like half of your grade or something, I think. And he stands up, and before the final test, he's, you know, final test is this Thursday. And now when you take the test, I want to make sure that you show your work. And so I went about studying, and I studied really hard, and I was prepared for that test, and I came in, and I was excited. I was nervous. I I read the problem. I looked at it. I wrote down what I needed to write down to get the right answer, and then, bam, I got the right answer. Next problem. I did the same thing, and I did not take him seriously enough on laying everything out just the way he wanted. Instead, I had studied so hard. I was so confident. I just showed what I needed to to get that right answer and move on. And I get to the end of this test, and I'm like, I aced this thing. I've got every problem just nailed. And I was so happy, and I hand in the test. And a few days later, I'm waiting for my, uh, waiting for him to grade it and give it back. And I walk in, he gives me back my test, and at the top of the paper, it's not the 100% I expected. I got a C. I got a C on this test. And I was like, well, what did I get wrong? Look, I got the first problem right, and I got got the second problem right. I I got every problem right. And so I walk up, and I hand on the paper, and I'm like, What's the deal? I aced this test. I'm your best student, pal. What are you doing giving me a C? And he says, you didn't show your work. I said, but I got the right answer. That's what matters. And he said, 
physics is extremely difficult. This is only the first physics class that you'll take. And as you go through, it's just going to get harder and harder and harder. And you're going to get overconfident unless you stay humble and show your work. You're going to get overconfident. You're going to start skipping steps, and you're going to have trouble later on. That's why I graded this test the way I did, where the right answer was only worth 70% of the question. The other 30% was, were you able to show how you got there? Mr. Rodden taught me how important it is to show your work. And here King Solomon shows his work. In the Gospels, we find the meaning and purpose of life. It's a relationship with Jesus. As we've learned from uh, the end of Ecclesiastes 2, King Solomon, it's God's creation, it's his salvation, and his judgment that bring meaning and purpose to life. Without those things, there's no meaning and purpose. And in the Gospels, we read about the salvation of Jesus Christ. He tells us about the Lord's coming judgment, and we see the answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And here in Ecclesiastes, we go through King Solomon showing his work about how Jesus is the answer to life, how Jesus is the meaning and the purpose, how anything apart from him is empty. And if we want to be full, we need to be filled with the fullness of the Lord. And King Solomon goes through and he shows his work. He says, I try to find fulfillment in this thing and that thing and this thing. And he finds them all empty as he focuses on those things Finds them empty of meaning. And any unbeliever out there right now, for the most part, they've gotten overconfident. Anybody who's rejected the Lord, anybody who's finding meaning and purpose in their career, in their finances, even in their family, apart from Jesus, there's no meaning. They've skipped steps. They've jumped to the end without going through step by step. And the interesting thing is, is Christians get criticized for being small-minded people, for not being intelligent enough by unbelievers. All these believers, right, they just haven't been able to think big enough to grow beyond what their parents told them and what their Sunday school teacher told them. It's incredible that they just think about this big man in the sky who exists somewhere, and Christians are actually the opposite. Christians are the only ones who are thinking big enough to look at all these different things and say, you find meaning in your career? It doesn't fill me. That's only for a season. What happens when work doesn't go well? What happens when it's time to retire, if that's what fills you? I need something bigger. And Christians are the only people thinking big enough to say, these things don't fulfill me. In the first week in the sermon series, we looked at Solomon as he looked at being king and, and his career and, and said, apart from the Lord, even this isn't big enough. He's got the best job that you could possibly have, the biggest job. And he said, even that job is not enough to fulfill me apart from the Lord. And he looked at his family and he said, generations come and generations go. Nobody even remembers them. Like even our loved ones, they are merely here for a season. And without the Lord, if God doesn't exist, they're just a vapor. They come and go, and they just ultimately blow away. And then we looked at King Solomon as he looked at his riches and tried to find meaning and purpose in, in his wealth and said that too is just, just momentary. It's just here one day, gone the next. All I'm doing ultimately is I'm building up incredible wealth for, to hand it off to someone else. And he says, this isn't fulfilling either. I need more. I need the Lord. So today we're going to continue on as King Solomon shows his work. 
and as he looks for meaning and purpose. So in chapter 2, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And so King Solomon's tried all these different things. Now he's just going to try happiness. He's going to try pleasure. And that's what people do, isn't it? As we grow restless, as we look for meaning and purpose in life, we reach for the lowest shelf, the easiest thing available, and we say, well, just what will make me happy now? And this is what King Solomon does as he goes through his journey. And he says, this also was vanity. And vanity has to be the most commonly used word in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. He just says, it's vanity. It's purposeless. It's pointless. The word for vanity in the Old Testament in the Hebrew is habel. It means a vapor, just coming and going, just passing. It's like a breath. And he says this is pointless. The pursuit of happiness. It's interesting that our country was actually founded on this right here. The Declaration of Independence of the United States of America. I don't know if you can read that. It's kind of small, but we have unalienable, unalienable rights given to us by our Creator, says the Declaration of Independence, and they are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our country was all about this, and King Solomon was all about this. Is this what we should be about as Christians? Should we be about the pursuit of happiness? Well, King Solomon tried it. He's testing his soul with pleasure. What will make me happy? What will make me happy now? I'm going to do things that bring immediate happiness and just forget about meaning and purpose in life and just try to live happy from one moment to the next. And so verse 2, he says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And so the first thing King Solomon does to find happiness is he tries laughter, having good times. He goes to the comedy club. He's just, let's forget about the big things and all the suffering. Let's just go have fun and laugh all the time. And I love laughing is fantastic. They say laughter is the best medicine. It's not the best medicine at all, actually. It's good medicine, though. It's really good. Laughter is wonderful. I love laughing. Pleasure is good. God is pleasurable. It's in his nature. God is pleasurable himself. It's a part of, his, of who he is. And laughter is great. I remember my high school friends. I loved my high school friends. I got to college, and I was like, this is no fun at all. All these people, they would ask questions, but they'd say, like, how are you doing today? And how was your spring break? And what did you do? Oh, and how's your, how's your relatives? And I, my high school friends, we didn't do any of that. All we got to do, all we got, did when we got together was just laugh. we get together and we would just tell jokes, nothing serious. We'd never talk about any, never talk about each other's lives. We would just, we were the shallowest people and we loved every moment of it. It was all movie quotes and jokes and sarcasm. And we just spent all of our time cracking up. And it was wonderful. I loved that. And now as I'm older, you know, my life has changed a little bit, and I love laughing with my kids. I just love it. It's so much fun. Um, the little kids especially, you know, they're, Papa, Papa, spin us by your ankles. You know, I pick them up, and I spin them by their ankles, and they laugh and laugh and laugh, and I throw them in the air, and then I, and then I pretend to, whoa, what's that? What, I hear something in your tummy, and I lift up their shirt, and I blow on their belly, and then they laugh and laugh and laugh, and I tickle them, and we laugh until we cry, and it's fantastic. I love laughing. Laughing's terrific. One of my favorite things to do in life is when I'm bored or tired or alone or down, I put on 
a TV show and laugh at Jerry Seinfeld or The Office or The Simpsons or something like that. I used to do that all the time and just laugh and laugh at these shows. And laughter is fantastic. But Solomon tries laughter and he says, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from having meaning and purpose, this doesn't bring any any lasting fulfillment into my life, just trying to ignore all the problems and have fun and, and just keep laughing, laugh. That's not fulfilling at all. And the interesting thing is some of the most funny people are also the most depressed. Chris Farley, Robin Williams. Because apart from God, there's no reason to laugh. You look at the world and the tragedy. You can't laugh at the tragedy of the world if God doesn't exist. Like if God's not going to fix it, it's not funny at all. It's horrible. The world is a horrible place with horrible injustice. And if all of it is just going to occur and there's never going to be anything made right, you can't laugh. It's hopeless. And these people, unless they're such small thinkers that they can't get their mind off the joke at hand, people like Robin Williams, incredibly intelligent people, right? They, they think bigger than just the momentary joke and they look at the big thing and they make fun of it, they laugh at it, but pretty soon... They start looking at it and they say, it's hopeless apart from God. If you think bigger than the joke, then laughter isn't going to be enough to fulfill us no matter how hard we try to keep stimulating our funny bone. The jokes just won't fill us. And laughter's great, but we've got to think better and Laughter is not the best medicine at all. It's good medicine, but the best medicine, Solomon says, is not this. You've got to think bigger. And so Solomon keeps going in verse 3 of chapter 2. He says, I searched my, with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. There's that phrase again, under heaven. King Solomon is just focusing on showing his work apart from God. God, where's God? God is in the heavens, right? That's the poetic way to describe the location of the Lord. You know, under heaven is a poetic way to describe what King Solomon's searching down on earth here, separated from the Lord. He says, I want to know what's good. So I tried laughter. It wasn't good. So I'm going to try some booze. It's wine o'clock. He gets his wine mom shirt on and puts the kids to bed early. And he does it wisely with wisdom, trying to find cheer, trying to find joy. And just like laughter is a distraction, alcohol is a certainly a distraction as well. How many of us, when we're sad, when we're looking for a way to cope, turn to alcohol to bring us a little joy into our life? And drinking is not a sin. In the Bible, having a drink is not a sin. However, it is something to be very careful with. And the Bible warns not just drunkenness, which is a clear sin, but it warns against drinking at all. You got to be very careful when you have a drink because it's not just, drinking is not just, alcohol is not just a neutral thing. It is a drug. And so the Bible warns in many places about it. Proverbs chapter 23, it says, starting in verse 29, this is King Solomon as well. Writing in chapter 23, verse 29, it says, 
Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. And then he ends with this verse in 35. He says, When shall I awake? I got to have another drink after that experience. Ephesians chapter 5 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. As we're talking about alcohol, as the Bible talks about alcohol, the Bible's not trying to keep us from something good. The Bible's trying to lead us to something better. So many times we look at the rules of God and we say, why? Why is God trying to keep me from something fun and something good? And actually what God is trying to do is to lead us to something better. It's like a fish in water. A fish in water is happy. A fish in water doesn't look at the land and say, why can't I go out there? Why does this person, you know, every once in a while we're, we find a fish out of water when we were camping. We found this fish. It was this little river. I have no idea how this fish even got in this river. It was a big old fish. This little creek. And we're walking, the kids and I, wading through the creek. And we see this fish out of water. And we pick it up because we don't want it to die. You know, the kids pick it up. Oh, it's too slimy. You know, so I had to do it. And I pick up this big fish and I throw it back in the water. And that's God's laws for us. From our vantage point, they might seem like they're keeping us from something fun, but we jump out of the water and we start to die. And that's what happens. And that's what can happen when we use alcohol and begin to abuse alcohol. And the interesting thing is over COVID, as, as having my quarantini, It was fun. And then the next night, I wanted to do it again. And so we did it again. Then you put the kids to bed a little earlier. And then pretty soon you're doing it four nights a week. And then you're, you're having two drinks a night. And, and that's just the way alcohol works. The weird thing about alcohol is you're down or you're, you're, you're lonely, you're sad or whatever. And so you have a drink and you feel really good. But then the wine, the alcohol doesn't actually leave you once that good feeling leaves you. It changes your brain to the point where you're sitting there a few days later at a Wednesday at noon and instead of enjoying life and instead of feeling good about things, you're thinking, boy, I can't wait till this weekend. I can't wait to get through this Wednesday. I can't wait to get through Thursday. I can't wait to be able to you, know, you get home and you try to get the kids to bed as fast as you can because you can't wait. You're looking forward to it. It's changed your brain. And you don't know it because that's what alcohol does. And I've actually had the great honor of counseling multiple alcoholics and you sit down and I've never met a person who says they drink too much. I've had friends who are drink till they pass out, and they still sit there in front of me and say that they don't have a problem because alcohol changes your brain. And you know you have a problem if you're sitting there and you're not enjoying your life. If it's Thursday at, at 10 o'clock and you're thinking, I can't wait for tomorrow night, your brain has been changed. You're no longer in control. The alcohol is in control of you, and you know it because you're not able to enjoy your life. No person who is looking for meaning or purpose or joy in life is sitting there 
who turns to alcohol, no, purpose, per, no person who's looking for meaning and purpose who turns to alcohol for, for joy finds the joy they're looking for when they are sitting there at Thursday morning thinking, I can't wait for Friday night. That's not what you were looking for when you started to drink. That's not the kind of joy and happiness you were looking for in life when you started to have that extra quarantini and, and add another night of drinking to your week. And that's when you know that the alcohol has taken over. And like Solomon says, who's got red eyes? Who's, you have all these things. At the end, it's like, I got to have another one tomorrow. That's what it does to you. We moved into our last neighborhood, and we were looking to do, you know, outreach and, and get to know our neighbors and love them and, you know, eventually reach them for Christ and just, you know, have a great neighborhood. So we got together and we invited all our neighbors over and, and we got to know them and we went and met them all. And we had, uh, I'd have them over and we'd play uh, Texas Hold'em, all the guys. And we have, you know, tons of fun and, and we we're getting along great. And it was fantastic. And we got multiple of these families into church. And then we had a neighbor moved in who was just a total alcoholic. And they started bringing alcohol over. And then I'd come home after work and and there'd be, we'd stand out in the driveway, and then he'd bring alcohol over, and pretty soon it was one drink for everybody, and then it was two drinks, and then three drinks, and then four drinks, and pretty soon I wasn't invited at all anymore. I'd come home, and everybody would be someone's basement somewhere. I wouldn't know where everybody went. And this new person who moved in the neighborhood, he wouldn't even come over if there wasn't alcohol. He wouldn't socialize if there wasn't drinking. And do you know anybody like that? where the alcohol is taking control of their life so much that they, they won't even go anywhere unless their alcohol is there as well. They don't love people. They don't love life. They don't love you. They don't love their family because they won't do any of those things apart from what they ultimately love, which is their booze. And that's what alcohol does to us. It takes us from loving our life and loving the people around us and loving our God and instead loving it. If you've ever tried to counsel an alcoholic, you know that if their wife steps in and says, I think you've got an issue, well, then they start to hate her too because she's standing in between of what they love and it breaks apart marriages. And here Solomon tries it. And Solomon is not just a fool, right? You think all, the, all these people who are drinking, they're fools. They're getting drunk. Like, you know, you don't have to be grasping a toilet to have a drinking problem. Solomon's wise. He's the wisest person out there. If anybody's going to flirt with alcohol and get it done right and do it well, it's King Solomon, right? He knows how to, he's the wisest. He's not just going out there and, no, he's guided by wisdom, and he even points that out in this chapter. He tries it guided by wisdom and finds out that it is a pointless endeavor. It's a bad way to find joy. And the Lord didn't put the passages on drinking in the Bible to keep us from something good. And drinking is not a sin, but it's something to be incredibly careful with. And God doesn't want to keep us from a good time. What he wants is to keep us from destroying ourselves with our idols. Whether it's the love of our career, our money, even our family, laughter. What he wants to get us through is his Holy Spirit 
and the love of the Lord. That's why Ephesians 5 says, do not get drunk on wine. That's a bad idea. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That fillness, that joy that we're looking for, that comfort from our sorrows, that, that thing that helps us to solve all of the issues in our life and be able to deal with them. It's not alcohol. It's Jesus. It's not our money. It's Jesus. And that's what God wants. He wants to be that for us. We turn to these other things for that, and the Lord is a savior. It's who he is. It's his turn to me. Lay it all down at the feet of Jesus. We have to think bigger. If we need a coping mechanism, it's not alcohol. It's the Lord. And Solomon continues on in verse 4, showing his work. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. And so Solomon, he sits down and he says, maybe I need a change of scenery. And how many of us is that fresh right now? You know, my car is kind of old and my house is kind of old and the doors aren't shutting right and the yard is kind of small and the view isn't very good and my office doesn't have enough windows and maybe I need a new job and I need a change of scenery. And King Solomon changes his, he's harmonized his environment. He's made it warm and inviting and creative. He's got all the feng shui You can't have a better house than Solomon. You can't have a nicer environment than King Solomon. And unless we solve the problem that's inside, if we go and transform our space, we'll just sit there and be unhappy. We think, oh, you know what, I just, maybe, we, you know, honey, we just need a new backyard. Let's get a barbecue pit, and we'll get a pool, and we'll get this, and we'll get that. And if we don't solve the problem that's in our hearts, then we'll have this amazing backyard and we'll invite all of our family and friends over and we'll just argue there instead. And what we need is to think bigger. And Solomon, what he's doing, he's, he's showing his work. He's got the triangles. He's got the equations out. He's leading us to the truth that we need to be finding in life. And the interesting thing is, is we've been going through this book of Ecclesiastes every week, just asking ourselves, are we doing the same thing? Or are we learning from God's word? A negative example can be a very powerful motivator. I remember growing up, I grew up in a mobile home court, and there were some very bad examples among the older kids in the mobile home court. I looked at what they were doing, and I looked at what they did, and I looked at where they were going, and I looked at what was happening. I thought, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that at all. And I avoided all of those things, and I learned from their lessons. Praise the Lord for the opportunity to learn from a bad example. And Solomon is showing his bad example and asking us, to learn from that as well. And the interesting thing is that what we do is so often our hearts get taken off of focusing on the Lord and we end up doing the exact same thing as King Solomon just with lesser resources. We don't have the money. We don't have the castle. We are not king. And yet we go through and we try to find meaning in all of these things anyway. 
And we think the problem is I just don't have enough of them. If I had more, if I had more, like King Solomon, well then, I'd finally be fulfilled in this idol. But it, it's never fulfilling, and Solomon's letting us know that. You can never be fulfilled this way. You've got to think bigger. In verse 8, 7, he says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. I got concubines and delight of the sons of men. And King Solomon is trying it all. Wouldn't it be great to have somebody else just wait on us hand and foot and not have to worry about anything? Wouldn't that be amazing? A few years ago, they started developing the land behind our house, and they put in this giant drainage ditch that really wasn't safe for our kids to be back there anymore behind our yard. And it was you know, wet and gross and, and could be feet deep at different points. And so we had to do the work of putting in a fence. And I thought it would be easy. I thought I'd just pay somebody to put in a fence. No! No, they don't do that. No, instead, I had to make the way for the fence myself. And so I had to get down there. I had spent days removing stumps from the backyard so we could put the fence through. And then we got to the side, and I found out that the patio I had, interestingly enough, actually went way under the grass into my neighbor's yard, and the grass had just grown over it. And I was glad I never said anything. I was glad, but I needed to take care of it. If I was going to put in a fence, I had to dig all that grass off. I had to rent a cement saw. I had to cut it. All the while, a sinkhole was opening up in the other part of my yard. A sinkhole! I'm not even kidding. I just kept, I'm looking at this thing. What is going on? I'm calling the city. What is this? What is happening? And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and sucking more and more of my yard down into this hole until it got to the driveway and it took half my driveway. I had to fix that and then my engine blew in my car, and I was so busy, I didn't even have time to go shopping. And then when they were fixing the sinkhole, they accidentally cut the cable to my internet. I didn't even have time to look online for a car. I was so busy. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be great to just have somebody come and just wait on you hand and foot? That's why I love having my driveway resurfaced, because it's only like a couple hundred bucks, and those people work hard, and I sit outside with a cool drink in my rocking chair, and for once... I feel like a king. <laughs> and I watched them do all the work. You missed a spot. And it's fantastic. Wouldn't it be great to do that all the time? It's actually miserable. Being a non-contributing zero turns out isn't fulfilling at all. And King Solomon just tried it. I'm going to have everybody waiting on me. Men and women, servants, if I need something, they'll be here. The back 40 needs to be mowed. I need more ice in my drink. Give me some more grapes. The Lord knows what he's doing. He asks us to rest for one day because that's what we need. Anything more than that, and you start to feel miserable and hopeless and purposeless. And the Lord has created us to work. We'll be talking about that in a sermon series next summer, if you remember. It's going to be a while. We'll be talking about it. The Lord has created us for work. And if we're unable to work, it is something to grieve. Something has happened that is grievous. The Lord has created us to work. And in heaven, we won't have that problem. He'll remove that. We'll have real responsibilities in heaven. It'll be great. What makes our work miserable now isn't responsibility. It's sin. 
It's living in a fallen world. It's dealing with sinful customers. It's dealing with sinful employees and bosses and the sin in our own hearts. It makes work very difficult. But the Lord has actually created us to work. He created work before the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It was a part of his purpose for his people. I'm going to create this environment. It's a playground for you. Go out and do it. Go out and get it done. Make with it what you want. It's only after the fall that the earth is transformed and now there's thistles and thorns and working is difficult. And... But God has created us to work. And King Solomon says, I'm not going to do it. I'm, work is miserable. so hard. All this sin, all this difficulty. You wouldn't believe the pressures of being king. I'm just going to sit down and I'm not going to do any of it. I'm going to have other people do it for me. King Solomon reminds, is reminded as he goes through and shows his work that we've got to think bigger. There are people who work way harder than we do who are happier than us. And there's people who work way less than we do that are more miserable than us. And the answer isn't work. We've got to think bigger. And so in verse 8, King Solomon says, I gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. And we talked about that last week. We focused on money last week. King Solomon's pursuit of wealth to find purpose and how that found himself empty. And we think too, well, money doesn't bring happiness, but just give me some of yours so I can find out for myself for sure. But money does not bring happiness. King Solomon asks us to learn from him, and we think if we, I just had a little more, I'd be happy. But there are people out there, in fact, most of the world right now, who would look at you. They would look right at you, and they'd say, you're the richest person I know. And I don't know about you, but are you satisfied? Are you happy yet with your finances? And we've got to think bigger. And so Solomon, he finds, showing his work, he's going to try something else. He finds lovers, concubines, many of them. He doesn't have fantasies. He's got realities. He can just buy anything. He can do anything he wants. And he just brings them in, one after the other. And you look at our culture today. And if people have resources, they do the same thing that King Solomon does. You look at Aaron Rodgers of the Packers. Every time I see that guy, he's treating another woman as his wife and using her and then getting rid of her in a year. And then he's got another actress and another model. And if you look at Kim Kardashian. She goes from one, finds the most famous, finds the most famous person, the most powerful person, and she attaches to that person to try to fill the hole in her heart, and she's empty, and she's gone and moved on in a couple years, over and over and over. And if you remember from previous generations, Elizabeth Taylor, how many marriages did she have trying to fill herself with lovers, one after the other? And people are not able to fill us. Whether it's a romantic relationship whether it's a friendship, whether it's our own family. Like, people were never meant to carry that burden for us, especially as sinful people in the sinful world. They can't do that. The Lord never meant for them to. And to do that is to use them. And Solomon uses people, and he uses women to try to find 
happiness and joy over and over. And for every celebrity overdose, they just prove the wisdom of Solomon is correct. They show Solomon's work, and they do it all over again. They draw the triangle, they write the equation, and they circle the answer, death at the end of it. They die on piles full of money, surrounded by all of their lovers from overdoses because they're so miserable that they've got to find a way to escape. And apart from God, this is not fulfilling. And we sit there, and we don't have these resources, and we think, well, if I just had somebody else, the problem is my wife. The problem is my husband. Boy, if I just had another person. And if we had another person, it wouldn't be long before we were miserable with them too. And the problem's not them, it's us. We need the Lord. We need the Lord in our hearts. Solomon sleeps on mattresses filled with $100 bills with all his lovers and say, it's not enough. We've got to think bigger. He's got singers. When I hear a song I like, I put it in my queue. Man, I remember back in the day, I would go down the road, you know, and I'd listen to the radio, and uh, there was no digital display to tell you what song you were listening to. I remember I had this guitar riff from Pearl Jam. And I thought, what am I listening to? And I went to Best Buy, which is the only place to buy music back in the day. And I went through all the CDs. And I looked, none of these songs, the names of them. What am I, these are just words. What do these songs mean? How can I find this song to put in my queue? And I had to buy like six of their albums because their song titles had nothing to do with their lyrics. And Eddie Vedder just mumbles everything anyway. And so I had to spend tons of money on this. And I finally found the song and I put it in. And I listened to it over and over and over. And it was fantastic. For about a week. Now I haven't listened to that song since. I hate it. I can't stand that song anymore. I must listen to that thing 150 times in a row. And Solomon hears something. He says, this is fantastic. Nowadays, we don't know what we've got. You hold the song up to the thing in the store when you're, and it tells you the name of it. It's amazing. It's so much easier to put songs in our queue now. Like, you got his queue of songs. Solomon didn't have a queue of songs. He had an actual queue, an actual thing with a ribbon. He just had them line up one after the other. He got singers. David Crowder, you're first. After that, I want Counting Crows. After that, I want the guy who sang that Gangnam Style song. After that, one after the other. You're next. Come on up. No, that song got old. Sing a different one. You don't have another good one? Next. And Solomon says, all of this Searching for pleasure, it's not enough. Singers didn't do it either. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. And verse two, or chapter two, down in 34, we'll skip a few verses. We've went through this before. It says, chapter two, verse 24. It says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Oh, wait, I thought he's been trying to do this. Hasn't he been trying to do this the whole time? But he's been doing it apart from God. He says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? He spent his whole time, all of his money, all of his resources trying to have some fun. And he realized that none of it's fun apart from Jesus. It's only a distraction. 
When you've got the Lord in your life, you've got real fun. And if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know what that means, it's hard to describe. Try to put the Holy Spirit of God into words. That's what this whole book tries to do. It's a long book. It takes time. It takes seeking the Lord to understand what that means. But there's a difference between eating enjoyment to try to distract yourself or to try to find some fulfillment in it versus having fulfillment in the Lord and then celebrating on top of that. It's, it's the difference between having a cake made out of icing, which is horrible, versus having a cake with some icing on top. We go to, uh, I think it's Sam's Club. They have some really good cake, you know, but it's really small these days. And uh, there's like heaps Heaps of icing that they try to point, you know, make their cake a little bigger, I guess. I have no idea. But you get a slice of this cake and the kids go, the kids go, I want the one with all the icing. That's what they say. I want the one, I want the one with the balloons on the top of it, the red one. They just, and then they, they get it and they take a bite of the icing and then they eat the cake and they leave the rest of the icing because it's disgusting. <laughs> and that's what life is like apart from Jesus. You try to have a cake full of icing. You make the icing the thing. But Jesus is like the cake. Paul sits in prison, and Ephesians is happier than any one of us as he sits in prison because he's got the Lord. And we're out of prison and we're miserable. I'd rather be in prison with the Lord than a king without him. Who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. It's vanity. It's pointless. The Lord himself is pleasurable. It's pleasure to be in the presence of the Lord. There's nothing more pleasurable than God himself. And all of the idols that Solomon goes through, none of them are bad things, turns out. They're all good things. Work is a good thing. Your family is a good thing. Romance is a great thing. It's all good things. These are all given to us by God for us to enjoy. But when we put them in the place of God, we become miserable. And we've got to think bigger. And anybody who is delighted with these things is a small-thinking, small-minded individual who can't break free from the entrapments of their culture and their mental limitations to ponder the bigger questions and picture in life and say, you know what? As great as this thing is, all the commercials, all the TV, all the songs are about this. You know what? I'm able to think bigger than that. It doesn't fulfill me. I need more. God loves pleasure. He himself is pleasurable. That's why Psalms tells us, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And we sit there and we think, oh, thank goodness, I'll finally have more icing if I just learn to love the Lord. I'll finally have more money. He'll give me the desires of my heart. More money, more health, more whatever. And that's not what the point of the verse is. That's not what the point of the scripture is when it says delight in the Lord. If we delight in the Lord, then we'll have what we delight in whether we have the money or not. Delight yourself in the Lord. If you delight yourself in the Lord, then you will have the desires of your heart because the desires of your heart will be for him. And he's actually the only thing good enough to deserve the desires of our heart. Turns out. Solomon isn't just any old, any old fool running around seeking, searching. 
He says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. Apart from God, when we take our eyes from these little things and we get wisdom and we start thinking about it, it well, then we become miserable. Because none of these things can satisfy us. And the only thing that's worthy of our desires of our heart, of the focus of our mind and our thoughts, is the Lord. And when we have the Lord, all these other things come into place. When the Lord is in your life, your life becomes what you enjoy. Paul's in prison and he's having a great time. When the Lord is in your life, your life is what you enjoy. And when the Lord is absent in your life, you try to enjoy these other things and find enjoyment in them. When I've had too many quarantinis, I wake up in the morning and I cook breakfast for my kids and I can't wait to get through it. It becomes a burden. I can't wait to get through this so I can get to what I really love, to get to work where I find fulfillment in my career, to get to the party where I find... But when the Lord is in your life, your life is what you love. And suddenly I don't have these other idols and I'm able to make breakfast fun and that's not something to get through and the kids are whiny and whatever, but I turn on the radio and I dance the girls around and I tease the boys and we make egg sandwiches and we have a great time. Suddenly it's not something to get through. It's part of my life. And I'm filled with the Lord and I'm able to enjoy it. And are you able to enjoy your life? Or do your idols have you serving them? can't wait to get through it so I can get to my idol. And Solomon has showed us his work. A plus B equals C. He's done it all for us. And our founding fathers, and I love them, they created this amazing nation. I have only good things to say about them, but they missed one thing. They should have replaced the pursuit of happiness with the right to pursue Jesus Christ. That should have been in there. Because the pursuit of happiness only leads to emptiness. When we try to focus on our happiness, Solomon's done it. He tried to focus on making himself happy minute after minute. Turns out he's made that his focus. And what happens when you shoot at empty happiness is you hit emptiness. We don't need the pursuit of happiness. Solomon says it's a vapor. It's vanity. What we need is the pursuit of Jesus Christ. We need to look to God. We gotta get over the sun. And stop looking at things under the sun. Meaning comes from a relationship with God. And when we have him in our sights, well, what we end up with is eternal joy. And that's what Solomon's found. That's what I want. And if you're looking for fulfillment this week, when you pray, don't ask Jesus for your other idols. Put those aside for a while. Lay him down at his feet. They're garbage anyway. Aren't you tired of that idol? Praying over and over and over that the Lord would give you this thing? It's exhausting. Lay it down at the feet of Jesus. And instead, as you pray, think about who God is. Because he's the only thing that's worthwhile. Think about how great he is. Think about how good he is. If you've got anxiety, think about how trustworthy he is. Don't pray about your anxiety anymore. Focus on the Lord and how trustworthy he is. 
You don't always have to pray this way. It's good to ask the Lord for the things we need. It's good to address our anxiety from time to time. But if you've got an idol of having, a, of having peace, instead of focusing on your anxiety, focus on the Lord and think about how trustworthy he is. If you need provision, don't pray for money this week. Sit there and think about God and how he is the ultimate provider. God's got this. Everything in the world belongs to him. Right? If you need hope, think about Jesus. He is your Savior. That's who God is. It's a part of his nature. If you're looking for joy, think about the Lord. He is pleasurable. And this week, make, instead of the pursuit of happiness, make your life about the pursuit of Jesus. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us a roadmap so that we can find joy and meaning and purpose. And Lord, as we go through life as sinful human beings and our focus gets taken off of you and it turned on other things, as seeking you and finding you seems like it's out of our reach and we instead go to the lowest shelf and grab one of these idols and try to fill our hearts with that instead, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. Lord, we repent of that pursuit. And Lord, I pray that you turn our focus back onto you, that we would be inspired by your spirit to pursue you and have you at the center of our lives. God, your word is hard to understand. It's a big book. Lord, I pray that you would inspire us to be thirsty for your word and return to a pursuit of you through your word. Lord, it's hard to get up for church. It's hard to get out for small group. It's hard to find the time to pray, but God, I pray that you would inspire us by your Holy Spirit this week to instead take the time that we spend pursuing our other idols and turn off the TV or put down the drink or stay home and instead not have activities every night of the week distracting ourselves from why we're really here, but take a moment and connect with you and put everything back in order. That we put the cake first and stop trying to fill ourselves on icing. Lord, we pray for your spirit to guide us and inspire us and reorder our loves that you might be our God and we might seek you and find you and be filled with you to the fullness that we might have peace and comfort and joy and all of those things that we've been seeking, Lord. We pray that you would bless us this week with the ability to seek you, find you, and therefore enjoy all of the other gifts you've given as icing rather than the main course. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. We pray that you bless the offering which we're about to receive as well, that we will go to your will to spread your word. Lord, we pray for our church, that you bless us, that we can be followers of you, who connect more deeply with you, who will fall in love more deeply with you and also with each other. Lord, we pray that you bless this brief time of worship which we have together before we leave. Lord, bless this worship team as they lead us into your presence. God, I pray that we would be comforted by your spirit and find joy in who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.